Uh, today, we'll be discussing Chapter 24 of our Confession on the topic of civil government. The discussion on civil government in the history of the church has been one of great controversy, uh, but it is a subject that I think is very important, especially to the Reformed Baptist identity. Uh, many Christians hate anything having to do with government or politics. And given the current state of everything, I don't blame you. But biblically speaking, you may be inclined to ask, what does politics have to do with Christ? Now, even posing that kind of question says something about where we are in church history because, of the, major because the majority of the church in church history has always regarded the topic of civil, go civil government as an important topic of discussion. Uh, and I think we may have fallen victim of a religious background which has retreated from its social responsibilities due to a wrong view of separation of church and state. And having such a view has, has denied the sovereignty of God over all areas of life. And this includes government and politics. As Sam Waldron says, to restrict Christianity to the spiritual realm only is really to destroy it. So as we go through each paragraph in the confession, I'll also be expounding uh, Romans 13. If you're familiar with uh, the New Testament, Romans 13, the, the first couple of verses, uh, verse 1 all the way through verse 7, speaks directly to this topic. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Romans 13 and leave it open there because we're going to be digging through that as we go through each paragraph. Now, let's... Start with the confession first. Um, let's look at paragraph one. Can someone read it? God, the supreme Lord and King of the whole world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword to defend and encourage those who do good and to punish evildoers. Thank you. Now, in this paragraph, there are two things that it asserts right away. Number one, that God is the supreme Lord and King of the whole world. You see that right away in the first uh, sentence. God, the supreme Lord and King of the whole world. The second thing that right away the paragraph asserts is that civil authorities are to be under him. See that? God, the supreme Lord and King of the whole world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him. Okay. Now, with respect to God being the supreme Lord and King over the whole world, I hope that you are convinced by that. Right? When we think about God being the King and the Lord of all, that means politics. That means government as well. It's not certain sections that don't belong to his kingship. Right? And again, regarding God being Lord and King over the whole world, I don't think I need to defend that as much. I think we're pretty good here. However, if we really believe that God is the supreme Lord and King of the whole world, we must also believe that his lordship and kingship does not exclude the civil authorities. Now, I think it's important to say a few things about the civil authorities being under the authority and headship of God as the supreme Lord and King. The civil authorities should subject itself to God. Every institution that exists should subject itself to God. 
Any government which does not acknowledge God is technically in rebellion against God. Now, to be fair, this is pretty much the description of all, if not most of the governments in the world at some level. But what I'm trying to make clear to you is that there isn't a dual ethic. There isn't rules for government and then rules for Christianity. There isn't morality that we get from the Bible that applies to everything except for government. There's no dual ethic. God's standard of righteousness isn't only for Christians. And we learned in one of the previous classes that God's moral law is universal. It is wrong to murder not only for Christians, right? We learned in one of our uh, previous classes also that this is a law that is written in man's heart. This is natural for man, uh, at least in the way that he was created by God. It's wrong to murder, not only for Christians, but for anyone in the whole world, and his moral law is a reflection of his character. And this is a law written in the hearts of men and women, and therefore there aren't two separate codes of ethics, one for Christians and one for other institutions. And the reason why this is important is because the civil authorities have a responsibility to govern, as paragraph one says, for the glory of God and for the public good. Now the question we must ask is, what is good for the public? What is good for the public? The answer is only that which God calls good and nothing else. And it says in chapter 16 in our confession, good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of a blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. Now this is not to say that civil governments ought to govern the institution of the church in any ecclesial way. The sphere in which the state governs is, as Luther would put it, temporal and outward, while the church administers the word and sacrament which govern the spiritual and eternal. You see the differences in spheres? In other words, there is biblical warrant for the separation of state and church. But ladies and gentlemen, there is never warrant for the separation of state and God. Right? And as we see, as we read in Romans 13, we're going to go through it, you'll see that the civil government is divinely appointed, divinely appointed by God. And it is imperative that they acknowledge this as they... Uh, continue in their duty. So let's look at uh, Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Can I have someone read it? I thought I saw it. Oh. Okay, Peter.
Thank you. Now, looking at verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul starts by giving us a command. And then he goes on to explain and give the basis for his command. Right, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So he starts by saying that every person should be subject to the governing authorities. And the reason for this is simply the fact that every authority exists uh, because God in his sovereignty has ordained that authority and that government to be. Uh, Now, it isn't only a fact that he ordained it, but even in principle, right, rebellion against authority is sinful. And rebellion in the creation order, right, when God created uh, Adam, Eve, he created the animals, he created all things, uh, there was sort of an order of headship. And rebellion against the headship in which God has instituted is, is sinful. We also see uh, rebellion against uh, the family structure, where children rebel against their parents. That is sinful. And here we see that rebellion against God's appointed authorities are also sinful. So rebellion against authority in general is a sinful, uh, a sinful act. So in principle, we can understand why Paul is commanding us to submit to authority. God is the ultimate authority, and therefore obedience to civil authority is obedience to God. And God often claims and asserts that he is the one that sets up kingdoms, but he's also the one that puts kingdoms down. God is the one that puts and sets up these authorities. We see this type of stuff in the Psalms, Psalm 75. You see this in uh, Daniel 2, Daniel 4. Um, this, is, this is clearly presented in Scripture. And this is why a Christian should never have a rebellious attitude towards authority. Respecting authority in general is essential to right Christian living. Uh, Respecting authority means that we understand that this is the structure that God has ordained for civil life to even exist. Now, there are many different political theories on the nature of civil government. Some would see civil government uh, being responsible for a vast range of duties, while others would see the need for the civil government to have a very minimal level of involvement in the life of the society. For example, some have argued that state is not even a biblical category in the way that family and people of God and Israel and church are. Therefore, they would see that the ideal biblical form of civil authority is much more of a private organization developed within people groups as opposed to a kind of uh, monopolistic authority that administers justice in a grander scale. But aside from any political theory, the question we need to ask is, what kind of civil government was Paul asking his readers to submit to at the time of writing this letter uh, to the Roman church? And the answer is that Paul clearly refers to a monopolistic authority 
in the hands of the governing authorities, uh, is what it says in, in that passage in Romans. Rome had already asserted this kind of monopolistic authority to administer justice. Notice what it says in John 18.31. It says, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You see the response there? He's telling them, Why don't you go and within your own religious laws judge Christ? And the Jews said to him, hey, it's, it's not lawful for us to do that. In other words, even though we have our laws, we, it's illegal for us to do anything that's contrary to the monopolized, monopolized civil authority that existed at the time. So again, you can see by this verse that even though Pilate had said to them, take Jesus yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews knew that technically it was illegal for them to do that. In other words, the state prohibited them from having their own sect of government that would contradict the Roman government. What's the point of everything that I'm saying? The point is that Paul is commanding Christians also to submit to their civil authorities over them, regardless if it doesn't fit their political theory. Okay? This is why Romans 12, 19, which is the chapter before, Paul tells Christians to patiently endure suffering and not administer justice and vengeance by themselves. Paul commands Christians not to seek to overthrow these Roman rulers because they were still serving a God-ordained function in their community, even if it was done imperfectly. This is what Paul is commanding the Christians at Rome to do. Now, I think it's important that I highlight an exception here, which is probably in your minds if you're, if you're following me. There's probably something in your mind that says, submit to everything? <laughs> and again, uh, you know, the, making clear this exception is important, lest we, we should claim that sinning is tolerated by God, and we know that that's not true. Uh, we learn a general and simple principle from Acts 4, 19 through 20, uh, and also Acts 5, 28 through 29. These are two good verses where we see uh, that there was a command given by the government or the civil authorities to people, to the Christians, that contradicted the law of God. They, in other words, the government was asking these Christians to disobey God. What do you do if you're in that situation? Should you still submit to government? You know, that, that's the question. And we see in Acts 4, 8, 18, through 20, 18 through 20, uh, I think gives us a good example. Can someone read that? So they, the rulers and elders and scribes in Jerusalem, called them Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. All right, so the key thing here is whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God you must judge. Obviously, the answer is it's not right to uh, listen to any other institution if it causes you to sin against what God clearly has commanded. Another example is Acts 5, 28 through 29. Can someone read that? saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. 
yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. <clears throat> yeah, amen. We must obey God rather than men. And we see from these verses that if the government commands us to take sinful oaths or to do things which the Lord has forbidden, disobedience to them is, at least in most cases, obedience to God. Just because God institutes all governments, whether good or evil, does not mean that uh, he expects his people to obey what is sinful. In fact, as John Calvin once said, um, he says, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So oftentimes, uh, we're placed in a tough situation, and this is the judgment of God. We see this happen in the book of Judges uh, with Israel. Let's go back to uh, Romans 13. Uh, Let's look at verses 3 through 5. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would uh, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, so it says that the, the reason why we should not resist authorities is because they are to encourage good and also to punish evil. And this is at least how it's supposed to be, but we all know that in this fallen world, even in this country, it doesn't always seem that way, especially as the civil government moves more and more away from what is truly good and truly just, according to what the Bible says. But even if we lived under a decent government, there are still a lot of laws which they uphold which are good, as they reflect the general equity of God's moral laws. For example, punishments for murder. That's still a thing, right? I hope. Stealing. I heard that's still illegal, right? Monogamy in marriage and so on. There's still laws in our country that reflect God's moral law. And these are things which many civil governments still uphold, which, again, like I said before, they have their basis in God's moral law, whether they acknowledge it or not. And therefore, when one disobeys these things, they're disobeying God because these are God's moral laws. In this way, God exercises his rule through civil authorities. As verse 4 says, they are God's servant as his tool to order and govern society. And whether the civil magistrate knows it or not, they are acting providentially as a servant of God, carrying out the judgment of God upon its citizens with punishment or with a sword. They are to act for the good of their citizens in accordance with God's righteous uh, laws and righteous standards. Now, verse 5 tells us that on the basis of everything Paul said before, from verses 1 through 4, we are therefore to subject ourselves to the civil government for God's sake in order to avoid his wrath, which is, first of all, the punishment of the sword and also God's own personal wrath. And also for the sake of conscience. See that part there? For the sake of conscience. In other words, 
obedience to the civil government, when they're in agreement with the laws of God, is at the foremost obedience to God himself, and this is why it is a matter of conscience for the Christian. Many Christians violate their conscience when they fail to pay traffic fines, when they cheat on their income taxes, uh, commit insurance frauds, all the way to lying in court and deceitful lawsuits. A good citizen yields obedience because it is the will of God and a Christian makes it a part of his religion to maintain and obey the just laws of the land and he does so for his own conscience sake. Uh, in other words, the call is don't uh, violate your conscience, don't sear it. Uh, obey, right? Especially as it reflects God's own moral standards. Uh, we read in Ecclesiastes 8.2 um, wisdom, right, of how we ought to be towards our government, towards our president. Uh, can someone read this passage? Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Thank you. I think it's a good reminder. Uh, for us to keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Peter writes, uh, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see this in 1 Peter 2.17. And this is significant because of the fact that 1 Peter, this epistle was written to a group of Christians who were being persecuted by everyone around them, including the emperor or king, Nero. Uh, John Gill, he's an English Baptist pastor, 18th century Calvinist theologian. Uh, he comments on this passage in 1 Peter. He says, Caesar, the Roman emperor, though a wicked persecuting Nero, and so any other king or governor, who, so far as he acts the part of a civil magistrate, preserves the peace, the property, and liberty of his subjects is a terror to evil works and an encourager of good ones and rules according to the laws of God and civil society is deserving of great honor and esteem from men and which is to be shown by speaking well of him. How many of us violate that often? By a cheerful subjection to him, by an observance of the laws and by payment of tribute and doing everything to make him easy and honorable in his government. I thought it was a great, great quote. And so even these wicked kings, uh, Christians are, even, even in that context where, where we read that passage from 1 Peter, those Christians were called to honor and obey uh, even though they were being persecuted. Uh, Peter also wrote before, in, in uh, 1 Peter 2.13, to 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, going back to Romans 13, let's look at verses 6 and 7. The 
And it says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And so Paul is saying that based on all that he said in verses 1 through 5, we honor the government by funding them. By funding them. That's how we honor them. Keeping them hired. And because we believe that they are God's servants by virtue of their office, that's why we pay taxes. As much as we may hate some of them up there. Now, I would imagine that many Christians object to paying taxes. I understand. And even in the time of the New Testament, tax collectors were equated with sinners. Saying tax collector was the same thing as saying sinners. <laughs> and, and, and the reason why is they, they often abused this role and collected unjustly. And even Paul, at the time of his letter to the church of Rome, was aware that taxes may have been collected to be misused. The church was well aware that the whole Roman government was not founded on Christian principles. On the contrary, they regarded it as founded in a system of idolatry. It was quite the opposite. Therefore, it was possible that the taxes in which Paul is saying that we ought to render would be misused by the government, even used to fund things in which God's law would oppose. Nonetheless, we pay as a way to honor the authority, but we also trust that God will punish those in government who misuse it to fund wickedness. And we know that a lot of it, even here, even in our context, is funding wickedness. Nonetheless, we honor them with our taxes and the way that they distribute it, God will eventually uh, judge. There's all kinds of scenarios. Um, I won't get into each scenario. Uh, all kinds of possibilities. If things were done differently, what would it look like? Would there be in any kind of circumstance to not pay a certain tax? Considering uh, if the way that it was done was different. Uh, possibly. But hold on to those thoughts. Write them down if you have questions about some of these technicalities. Write them down. We have a green box back there. Put it in there because in the end of this series, we're going to do a Q&A, and that'll be a perfect time to ask specific questions or confusing things uh, that you didn't understand. You can ask questions uh, about those things. Uh, but again, in summary of this paragraph, paragraph one, and what we read in uh, Romans 13, a summary is that the government should be seen as an institution ordained by God under his sovereign lordship. And it is given for the good of the people and to punish evil. Also, there's no example in scripture of authorized revolution. None. There isn't an example of authorized revolution against civil authority. That's not biblical. Therefore, Christians should not promote revolts but submit for God's sake to their authorities. And all that being said, Christians still do not have the liberty to disobey God regardless of what the civil authority 
mandates. So you see that balance? Let's look at uh, paragraph two. Can someone read paragraph two out loud? So I'll start this by saying that many Christian pacifists have asked, how can this be? How can Christians be allowed to get involved in duties of public office, which may include the use of the sword, right? Police, they have a gun. War, the death penalty. How can Christians be involved or be permitted to be involved in civil government? What about the Sixth Commandment or Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5? But these folks miss that the Bible distinguishes between the personal vocation and the vocation of civil magistrates. While the personal duty of individuals is not to take vengeance into their own hands, the public duty of magistrates is to exercise God's vengeance on civil evildoers. Now, this is not a dual ethic. This is a God-ordained duty for civil magistrates operating within their sphere. The sword, as we read in Romans 13, is not given to them in vain. Therefore, it's not sinful, contrary to the Anabaptists, to work in the government. And this speaks to our Reformed Baptist identity. Our Baptist forefathers were not Anabaptists. It was not the Anabaptists who taught that the Christians should not occupy the office of civil magistrate without sinning. They thought that this office was an office of the devil. And on that note, I think it's important to also add that the mainstreams of Baptists in America are actually descendants from the Puritans who came to Baptist convictions and and not Anabaptists. Most modern Baptists are actually historically Calvinists and Puritans in their origin, and not Anabaptists or Arminian. My, how things have changed. Now, Christians may serve in government. This is clear in the Bible. And while doing so, they are to seek peace and justice. They are not to turn the civil government into a theonomy, being that the keys to the kingdom of God is never given to the state, but are given to the church. And we see this in Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. Right? The keys to the kingdom of God is not given to the state, but are given to the church. Nor is the sword given to the church, like some violent religious extremists. But rather, the sword is given to the God-ordained civil authority. No soul has ever been won with the sword. Never. No one received eternal life because they were provoked to by the sword. On the contrary, Christians working for government ought to influence it by pursuing righteousness, maintaining justice and peace for all, and as they serve the laws of the land, they should never disconnect from their own convictions of the law of God. So if you work for government, 
don't clock in and clock out of the word of God. All right, don't clock in and say, I'm in a different sphere. And so now that I'm serving as, I don't know, uh, governor or uh, tax collector or uh, clerk of courts, when you go out into the work field, don't clock out of the word of God. You can't do that. You can never do that. It's impossible. Right? Again, as, as we serve the laws of the land or those who serve in civil government, they should never disconnect from their own convictions of the law of God. When it comes to righteousness, there really is no neutrality. There's no dual morality. When a Christian works in the government, they cannot believe one thing on Sunday and promote contrary things on the other days of the week. We are free to work in the world but never free to sin against God's word. Examples of believers involved in pagan governments are Daniel and his three friends, Nehemiah, who later became governor of Judea. But before this, he was a cupbearer to Cyrus, the king of Persia. It was his request to the king which initiated the return of exiles to Judea and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And these wise people influenced their pagan governments with the principles of God's word, and God blessed their endeavors. Now, don't mistake me. The mission of the church is not to transform society, but rather to be faithful to God in society as we testify to the good news of the gospel. We are to be faithful members of society as we testify to the good news of the gospel. All right, let's look at paragraph three. Someone read paragraph three. So we've already discussed uh, that on the basis of Romans 13, obedience to civil government in agreement with God's laws is obedience to God. And that's the majority of that paragraph there. So I want to move quickly towards the last sentence in that paragraph, just for the sake of time. That sentence says, we ought to make requests and prayers for kings and everyone in authority so that, so that under their rule, we may live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. What we, we, we ought to pray for our governments, that they may more and more conform to the will of God. That's what we should be doing as Christians. Um, we, we, we pray that they conform more to God's moral standards, which will result in blessings upon this nation that makes the Lord their God. I love what it says in Psalm 33:12. It says, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage." And so again, we should be praying for wisdom for them, and above all, that they may come to know the Lord, and by this they would rule justly under subjection to Him. And I think our our culture has. Uh, pushed a lot of propaganda, right? And oftentimes, 
when we think about the government, we think in terms of conspiracy and evil and wickedness. And listen, I understand. However, it, it can be a hindrance to the Christian because how many times, and I would say ask yourself, how many times when you pray, you're praying about uh, the president? How many times in your prayer do you pray for the government or the governor or the mayors? Um, maybe you do. But I think one of the reasons why many people don't is because we tend to look at them as like the kingdom of Satan. Uh, and we see in scripture that we're called and commanded to be praying for these people. That it is possible that God transform our presidents or our governors or our mayors or elected officials. It's possible that God can change their heart and God can use them in spectacular ways. So don't, don't look at that sphere and think that God can't work in the hearts of those people in charge. Again, uh, Psalm thirty-three, twelve: Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Again, we should be praying for wisdom for them and above all that they may come to know the Lord and by this that they would rule justly under subjection to him. And we see in Jeremiah 29, 7, this idea that we ought to seek the good of our countries where we live. Let's, uh, can someone read that? Jeremiah 29, 7. Amen. We should pray to God that he would be merciful to bless our nations with repentance and with faith in Christ, knowing that this will result in peace and prosperity. We know from Scripture that there can be no true peace among men if there's no peace first between God and man. And this is why it's necessary for believers to pray for our country, our governors, our presidents, etc. Many Reformed churches, actually, throughout history have placed in their worship liturgy a set time of corporate prayer for governing authorities. And we saw this with uh, Martin Bootser uh, and the church at Strasbourg. We saw this with Martin Bootser uh, in, in, in their liturgy in, in the church at Strasbourg where they would, they would place a specific time where they would pray for their governing authorities. And where do, we, where do they get this idea? Where do we get this idea? We get it from 1 Timothy 2. Verses 1 through 4. Uh, let's, let's look at that. Can someone read that? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. So we, we, we get that concept of praying for the civil authorities from that passage. And I think it's important that we pray both corporately as a, as a body, we pray for our, our leaders and our governing authorities, and that we also pray individually. So when you're home or when you're here praying by yourself, pray for the government. And we see a very good reason why. Uh, in verse 3 of that passage here, 1 Timothy 2, uh, 2, 1 through 4, verse 3, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That should be a motivation to pray for our government. Now, before I end, one more point that I think is worth mentioning is that the particular Baptists of the 17th century were the earliest Reformed Christians to uphold religious liberty. Almost all other uh, Reformed denominations in the United States have eventually come to uphold religious liberty, but had to do this by making changes in their own confession in order to do that. And I'm not sure if you knew this, but the Baptists did not have to change their views in order to hold or uphold that great point. They always held it. The particular Baptists understood, as expressed in Nehemiah 9.37, the fact that civil authority rules men's bodies and were not intended to rule men's souls or consciences. Indeed, it can't, right? And so as we pass through this world, let us submit to the civil authorities in whom God has providentially placed us in, while never submitting to sin, of course, nor bowing down to idols. May we pray for our governing leaders in all things that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? Amen. Again, if you have any questions, please write them down. Put them in the box. We'd love to answer them uh, at the end of the series of this class. Uh, like I said before, we're going to do a Q&A. Let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you that we happen to be in a very privileged situation in many ways when it comes to our civil government. And for this, we are so thankful Yet we are also aware of the idolatry and the departure from your standards in our society. And Lord, we pray now for our country and our president. We also, lift up, we also lift up our mayors and governors, our police and our military. May you bring them to repentance and true faith in Christ Jesus, the true Lord and King over all. We pray this for your glory and also for the good of all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.